Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. We all work hard to deliver the best musculoskeletal care that we can for patients, but what does the best care really mean? Today on the JOSPT Insights podcast, Dr. Chuck Thigpen, physical therapist, athletic trainer and researcher from ATI Physical Therapy and the University of South Carolina joins me to unpack value-based healthcare. We ask, what is value in musculoskeletal care and value for whom? Is this purely an economic argument? Welcome and thanks for joining us on JOSPT Insights, Chuck. Thanks for having me, Claire. I look forward to talking with you today. It's a pleasure to have you join us on the podcast. Today, we're talking about value-based healthcare. Can you give us a sense of what value-based healthcare means, how you define value, value for whom, I guess? It's really the fundamental question. You know, I think um, largely when we talk about value, I think traditionally, especially in, in therapy in the U.S., it's really focused on cost and less is more. It's really two things. It's patient outcomes. So does the patient improve? Patient experience. So how was the overall experience with cost as a, as a uh, denominator for that? Did the patient get the health care they needed? How was their experience in consuming that health care? And then was it do- done at the right or the best cost possible to drive those outcomes and experience? I think that's a really important distinction because here you're you're making a clear distinction between the cost and the value that the patient or the person receiving the healthcare places on on their outcomes. Absolutely, because that's where I think it's interesting. Time becomes an important factor. Take a patient that shows up with a shoulder problem and I can't lift overhead. Um, if I don't work overhead and I'm, I'm at home and garden and do down here, I can probably wait for that problem to resolve and it's not that big of a deal. So now it's not only outcomes over experience, over cost, but then it's over what time period. And it's interesting because if I contrast that with maybe a higher functioning individual, let's say a laborer, and I work in an industry where I have to work overhead all day long, if I can't lift my arm up, I can't make a living. So now that's a completely different construct in a context of the patient's expectation on the outcomes and experience that drives how much am I willing to spend to be better. And I think sometimes we take results, and I'll just use uh, atraumatic cuff tears are a great example. Depending on that patient presentation, the answer is really different. And so I think sometimes we take evidence that there's really strong evidence that suggests for atraumatic cuff tears that I ought to give non-op a chance. Well, that's fair, but if the patient doesn't have time to allow that to happen, they may, that may not be the right outcome for that patient. So I think as we really understand value, and I think your question, value to whom, um, becomes really important because ultimately is what is the best overall healthcare for an individual patient at that point in time? And we're going to get into clinical practice guidelines and how we kind of balance research and clinical experience and, and patient values and preferences, that that seminal evidence-based practice framework in a moment. But for, first, I'd like us to drill into what value-based healthcare means in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation sphere. So let's bring it down a little bit closer to home, closer to physical therapy or, or MSK rehabilitation. 
Yeah, you know, I think today, and it's interesting, uh, in some parts of the world, they've been doing this a while, and the states were actually catching up to kind of the way the rest of the world functions. But um, traditionally, we've just managed number of visits, right? So the payers and the insurance companies in the states say, okay, you get this many visits for a condition, and that's how we define value. Over the last 10 years, there's been process-based measures. Did you do what we think are good behaviors, but still relatively utilization cost-based measures? Where things are now moving and there's picking up and there's uh, momentum, I think, that shows that actually because of the care we provide early in a musculoskeletal continuum, there's downstream savings within the healthcare system. So reduction of opioid use, reduction of advanced imaging, you know, potentially decreasing surgery rates, all of those things together collectively provide value, but it's over a longer period of time. So I think what we're seeing as a shift is a move from physio and rehabilitation services being an end treatment that's provided as opposed to being earlier in the span of care. And I would suggest that actually being uh, the primary source or the primary entry point for musculoskeletal care to provide a clear diagnosis, a prognosis, an outcome for the patient, and, and, and establish what the treatment plan is that may or may not include physical therapy services. How do I know if my patients are getting better and what their experience was? Our recommendation is within our patients that we see at ATI is every two weeks, you're going to reassess outcomes and we're going to do that through the end of care. So now that allows me really to answer three questions. One is, where did the patient start in terms of their disability? That gives some intent on prognosis. Two, are they improving over time? So is the treatment plan that I'm putting in place and that the patient's participating is, are, are we on the right track or not? Three is, what end outcome did a patient achieve? And I think consistently using outcome measures to do that allows us to answer those three questions. Now, we've just been talking about outcomes and right at the top of the podcast, you talked about how experience is also a key part of assessing or delivering value-based healthcare. How do you get at patient experience? How do you ask people in a meaningful way and in a safe way that allows people to respond truthfully? Um, that's such a good question. So I, I think there's a couple approaches. You could take the, uh, what I'll call the Uber or Lyft approach. And you, uh, we've probably all had the Uber driver that gives you the card and says, please rate me five stars on the way out. That's one approach. But, you know, I think it is uh, a couple of ways that within our experience that we use is, uh, I guess, Google's everywhere, right? And so we use the Google ratings are an interesting and, and look, you get pretty honest feedback, but it provides a real-time way that isn't hard for you to set your practice up in that you can get feedback and says, look, you're three stars and here's my comments. And the reality is when that happens, you have to be prepared to respond. Um, it, it creates some opportunities and some uh, benefit. Uh, the other thing that we use is some specific patient satisfaction relative to their experience. So we ask patients things like, did you meet your goals with coming to therapy? And so very patient specific. So I think as you think about your practice, what are you committing to to patients? One of the things we're committed to is access to care. Was it easy to make an appointment and could you get to therapy uh, in a timely manner? And so those are things from an experience standpoint we're asking specifically. And I think that's what's important. Are we meeting our commitment to patients to help get them better? How do you deal with the scenario where someone might come in having experienced shoulder pain a few times in their life, had 
a bunch of different treatments, have a very clear idea of what works or what they would like you to do. And if that's not matching with, say, clinical practice guidelines or your perception of what evidence-based practice or particularly what the the best research is telling you, how do you navigate that shared decision-making process? You know, it's such a good question, Claire, because I think, uh, at least in the States, most patients have had an experience with therapy before, but as opposed to even in the beginning of my career, um, where it was pretty patriarchal, they were coming to the expert, they wanted you to deliver them answer, and they would jump in. Now people have probably Googled to find out what the answer is. And so they're going to look at Google, they're going to go to whatever their Instagram, Facebook, whatever their social media circle is. So they probably ask all their friends and they're going to come in with an idea. So I think where I start with that is one is what are your goals uh, of therapy? Why are you here? It's amazing how many patients say because the doctor told me to and like they're almost begrudgingly. So they have no idea what to expect. So I think that creates what's their goal. And then I think establishing that goal and what their chief complaint at that moment is allows you to make a decision. So I'll use dry needling as potentially an example for shoulder pain. There's good evidence that shows that dry needling can change pain, it improves range of motion, potentially improves muscle function in the acute. But there's not any literature that shows that if I get six, 12 weeks out, that it makes a difference. So then I have to make a decision for that patient based on the patient's preferences, their resources, and the priority of pain Is this something I need to pull out of my tool bag and apply at that time? And I think, you know, that's just the balance. And the reality is in the States, pretty much all insurance companies don't pay for a code for dry needling. So there's not a direct way or really a legal, clear path to be paid for it. So I think then you have to make a a conscious decision that, hey, look, either, and, and it just depends, some practices will charge independently, some just included in the care they deliver. But I think it has to be really intentional and transparent with the patient of, look, I think this could help your pain short term. I know it's kind of crazy. I'm going to stick needles in you, but it's likely to help a lot. Here's why we're going to do it. We're going to do it for this amount of time. It may cost you out of pocket or not, but here's the result I expect. And now together we can decide how to get there. And I think my experience is most patients, that's a a two-way discussion they're happy to have and to get to a good spot. And now it's our treatment plan and not my treatment plan giving to you. And I think that's the biggest thing. Look, with shared decision-making, my responsibility to a patient is to make sure that they have the best diagnosis I can give them. They have a clear understanding of their prognosis and their expectation of recovery. And then from my experience and what the best evidence is, what's the most likely treatment plan to match their goals? And then the patient has to go through a process of sorting what are their resources, their time and ability, how fast do they want to get to that point. And then we can agree on a treatment plan and and a path forward. And I think sometimes because we just say, hey, show up two times a week or three times a week or once every month without that conversation, patients aren't really able to capture, why am I coming to therapy again? Because if it's just, I'll go back to raising my children. If it's just because dad said so, or the doctor said so, they're not likely to buy into what that is. And the reality is adherence to the overall treatment plan, uh, you know, beginning with uh, self-modification or patient activity modification, participation in some sort of exercise, and doing that consistently over a period of time, that's our job to bring people through. And I think a lot of times because it, 
I'll be reflective on me. Early in my career, I loved to put my Superman's cape on and come fix stuff because I could do some manual therapy things, make them feel better. And I was the reason people were getting better as opposed to my responsibility wasn't to get you better, but my responsibility was help to partner with you. And that's just a different mindset that depending on your training within therapy and kind of where you come from, I think sometimes we, uh, we're we uh, Superman with our capes coming in to save the day as opposed to really coming alongside a patient and helping them achieve the goals that they're there for. So I think it's uh, it's definitely a process, not a single point in time. The way I think about it is really committing ourselves to a good process of care. Guideline adherent care, if I think about uh, some of the early work that uh, Julie Fritz and colleagues did, they said, look, early manual therapy for low back pain is probably good. That's probably a good thing. But if you're still doing manipulations at the 15th visit, not good. And so I think it begins in this stepped care. I know uh, Chad Cook and Dan Rohn have published on a sort of this gradual stepped approach. And I think sometimes we think about adherence as a single point in time and either a yes, no, and not more of the process of care. And, and that's why I, my bias of our job or our where we're at as a profession moving from the end of care to the beginning of care is we're going to have a much stronger responsibility on providing timely access to therapy, providing a good diagnosis, giving a clear prognosis, and then establishing a plan of care that the patient can do likely will lead to better outcomes than being focused on just the treatment delivery side, which traditionally has characterized therapy. Now, Chuck, where do you see interdisciplinary or interprofessional practice fitting in here? I think we absolutely have to get off islands for a lot of different reasons. I'll I'll use the states as an example is we've created kingdoms and castles, and that's not the world the patient lives in. Uh, The patient actually could care less where they go to get care. They have an issue. They want it resolved, ideally fairly cheap and really fast. And so whoever can do it. And so I'll use in the states, there's a um, a little bit of tension, if you will, between chiropractic and, and physio. And chiropractic actually does a wonderful job at getting patients in. They provide really easy access. At most parts of the U.S., you can walk around the corner and walk into a chiropractic office, and within a pretty good period of time, they will see you for your for your uh, back or neck pain. We have to understand that that probably is more important than who's delivering the care. And so I, I use that as an example. If we're really going to move to understanding a shared decision and a patient-centered approach, we have to actually ask the question, what does the patient want? So I think if we put our hat on of how do I want to receive services and healthcare, And so I think providing good access and understanding what does the patient need out of the experience allows us then to put on this interdisciplinary hat to understand that probably my job, I'll use U.S. sports euphemism, my job is to quarterback the patient and to make sure they get to the right place. And I think that's actually a much more important place in the healthcare system and ecosystem. And I'm jealous of the Australian model because they're, they're where I think physio belongs up front as a primary healthcare provider. I screen you, I see you look, yes, you have a musculoskeletal problem. I either can or can't help it. Or wait a minute, this isn't musculoskeletal related. Let me get you where you're going. Or even the, maybe the more important question, right? Oh, wait a minute. You seem to have diabetes going on that is unmanaged. I need to get you to somebody to take care of that, right? Because 
if we think about just at least in the U.S., the obesity and diabetic and, and heart-related uh, epidemics that affect true population health probably have a greater impact on musculoskeletal health. And so if physio is going to move from just being a treatment delivery person, but to actually, quote unquote, practicing at the top of our license, we have to understand it's a total thing. And then we have to take off our cape and realize my job isn't to deliver and be the one-stop shop for everything, but it's actually to be that through point to the next and the right provider in the care continuum. One of the other discussions that I'm seeing more people engaging in within the musculoskeletal rehabilitation community is overdiagnosis and overtreatment. I think this has garnered a fair bit of attention in medical, in general medical practice, and it's now starting to become more prominent in, in our sphere. How do you balance these competing concerns of, of, of delivering too much care with delivering value-based care? You know, I think it is back and rooted of what we talked about of measuring how a patient's doing and what the patient's expectations are. So I think as alone, and, and look, we could, I, I use back pain imaging or shoulder imaging as an example, right? If we go into any population, we take uh, an MRI or some advanced imaging, half of us are not going to look very good. And actually, if you're at my age, maybe more than half. And so it gets to that point and, and you're like, well, wait a minute the diagnosis alone doesn't provide the right context. And so if we go back to our example of maybe the grandmother who can cope with a rotator cuff tear versus the laborer who can't because his livelihood depends on it, that's the other context that I think is actually probably missing in some of this over-diagnosis, over-treatment. And so I think when you then consider what does the patient need out of this, why is the patient seeking care now brings into this, you know, it's a challenge with the U.S. Uh, model is in a fee-for-service model, I do it because the patient's here, they want care, why would I not charge them to do that? Like, it's sort of that uh, continuum as opposed to, and that's why I think where we're moving in the U.S., you know, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is now requiring that we report our outcomes it is actually required by law now. So it's a big shift that if you hit a certain threshold, you actually have to report your outcomes. So I think having those outcomes in a little bit of this context of patient improvement begins to set the stage that you you can't just treat everybody that walks in the door the same. You're going to have to contextualize it, understand I've got a, a medical diagnosis that is likely, you know, like gray hairs, or in my case, no hairs, just a, a factor of aging. And I have to understand in the context of this patient, is me addressing and treating and providing and delivering care for that likely to, one, help the patient in the short term, but also I think the place that physio actually has the biggest chance to, to have an impact is earlier in the care, let's just pretend like it's $100 a visit, so $100 US for a visit, that if I did 10 of those visits, so for $1,000, most of the time I could avoid low back surgery, you would do it every day people would make that bet all day long. So I think that's where putting utilization in the right context and over-treatment in the right context. And there's a lot of people doing a ton of great work in this area. I'm thinking particularly of the folks driving the Choosing Wisely campaign and all of the research that's sitting behind Choosing Wisely. So I think that patients are feeling more empowered 
and getting those messages that are helping patients to feel more empowered to ask the question, why do I need this test? Or can you help me understand why I need this treatment? Asking those types of questions of their healthcare providers. So I wonder if the other part of it is also getting comfortable answering that question and and feeling confident to be able to answer that question. And, And I guess the flip side is that if there is no answer to that question, or if you're really struggling to answer that question, perhaps that's giving you a bit of a clue about which direction you're headed in. I think that's such a good point. You know, I think that's when I, when I say prognosis, that's what I think about is, okay, I've got a bucket of a diagnosis. Here's why I think you're having your problem or you have imaging or what have you that tells me that's the musculoskeletal condition related to your complaints. But I think really that piece is what's so key. Can I truthfully say in the best evidence available and I experience the likely outcome of doing this treatment for a period of time is this result. We don't like to give wrong answers. And so I think we're fearful to provide a patient with a prognosis and a plan when the reality is if you look at some of the low back literature, just talking to a patient about their condition and the likelihood that, look, you've got acute low back pain. I know it's really bad. If you do these things, probably in two or three weeks, it's just going to go away. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to die. No, you're not going to die. Oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to be able to walk again. Yes, you're going to be able to walk again. And so I think just that decompresses the patient quite a bit. And it's a whole other experience as opposed to, and look, I've had patients that I've given a prognosis and came back and said, you told me I was going to be better, but it actually comes back to me again. This is unlinking our Superman's cape and coming alongside of the patient and saying, look, if we do this plan, if you modify your activities with your condition and your age and your comorbidities, your current status and your goals, this is how you're likely to progress. Here's our plan. We're going to move along. And in two weeks, I'm going to check your outcomes again. We're going to see how you're doing. How's that sound? It's like, oh, okay, that sounds good. And then what it helps with is in two weeks, they come back and they're not better. It's not because I failed as a therapist. Now we can have another discussion about why are we not getting there? Oh, Actually, I only did my exercises twice. Or, you know what? I've done exactly what you told me. I've modified my activity. I've been doing all my extension exercises. And, you know, initially it helped my pain centralize, but actually now it's getting worse. And so therapist, I'm like, aha, it's because you're not extension-based, you're flexion-based, and I missed the boat. So, right, that, and that's okay. I, I've had those experiences with patients. I'm like, look, I, actually, I thought it was this but I think this is actually the direction we need to go. And now we're going to change your treatment plan completely on board. And they're actually relieved that there's this two-way discussion with a patient. And that's what I think gives the good experience and gives us the best chance to get a good outcome. So to me, I see that as the balance of of sort of patient preferences and expectations with, with guideline adherence, but also kind of putting it in a real world. Chuck, thanks for taking your superhero cape off for the day today and joining us on JOSPT Insights. Claire, it's been such a a joy and I just uh, love talking to you about it and enjoyed it anytime. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. 
and Facebook. We're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.